Romans. We're taking a one Lord's Day break. Actually, I guess a few more than that, but a one Lord's Day break from uh, the Gospel of, Ma of Matthew. <clears throat> and uh, we're doing so for good reason. It's not often that I break series, and when I do, I always think I have a good reason, whether you do or not. But um, it is uh, on July 1st, of course, a very significant day. It's, it's Rachel's birthday. But besides that, uh, it's Canada's birthday. And uh, we, we do remember when it was Rachel's birthday because we used to, on Canada Day, Dominion Day, which is what we know it to be because, of course, it was based on Psalm 72, verse 2, that he shall have dominion from sea to sea. And uh, he is the Lord. Uh, it's, we have to remind people, have to remind our prime minister, our premier, um, every politician, I think, just about needs to be reminded that Canada has a Christian history. Uh, it's not taught anymore. It's been skillfully removed from the curriculum. But uh, Canada has a Christian history. And it is a solid Bible-based Christian history. You can read about it at the Parliament buildings by reading the scriptures that are etched into stone uh, on Parliament Hill. And the history uh, books years ago uh, showed us that clearly, of course. Our forefathers came, and of course, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic explorers, and they came from France, obviously, came and they brought with them uh, a faith. Now, we disagree with... Uh, the trimmings of Catholicism, but we must understand they're Trinitarian. Lots of people aren't. And they brought with them uh, a commitment to uh, bring their understanding of the gospel with them, which they did. And they were later followed by other French explorers, uh, Samuel de Champlain, and uh, he brought a man with him by the name of Dumont. Uh, Champlain was a mixed marriage. His mother was a uh, Huguenot. His father was Roman Catholic. So there was a, a mixing of Protestantism and Catholicism coming into Canada. And uh, that was followed for years and years and years. And you have to explain that patiently to people in our day and age because uh, they're very evolutionary and they're thinking that things just happened. Here we are and let's just go for it. And it's very important to have a, a grip on how we as Christians are to live in a dark nation such as we've become, where it's becoming darker and darker and darker. And uh, we need to know how to live in that nation. And uh, that nation is our nation, and we need to know what God has called us to do in this day and time. We're going to look at Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14. And in doing so... Uh, we want to see how that applies to us contextually as to where we are and, and how we as God's people are to adorn ourselves. It's not always that God needs more soldiers. Often it's that God needs better soldiers. And uh, uh, we need to see and recognize that. Well, let's hear the word of the Lord. You recall uh, that the book of Romans starts off with an explanation of the gospel and ends with a benediction in Romans 11, verse 36, and then begins in chapter 12 with a therefore, which is the application of everything that preceded it. And so uh, we have that following through all the way from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through to the conclusion of the book. And now Paul is writing and he's giving a commentary, if you will, of uh, how we're to live in relationships and whatnot. And then he says this in verse 11. Do this, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard 
to its lust. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word, shall we? <clears throat> Lord, we give you thanks for your holy word. You've not left us to ourselves to try and figure out life. And you've not left us to our own devices as to what the truth is, what right is, what wrong is. Uh, you've not left us to run plebiscites to see uh, if a certain activity is righteous or unrighteous. You've given us your sure and certain holy word. And help us, our Father, to look to your word and to look to your Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live for him and bring glory to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The uh, oft times we will say that a translation should probably have the inflection this way. And sometimes we might say that, that it's perhaps best in the New King James Version or it's perhaps best in the New American or this inflection is drawn out, <coughs> pardon me, uh, in, a, uh, in another translation. Well, I, I'm here to serve notice that the preferred bestest ever uh, phrase is found in the King James Bible. And it's this. It's the little phrase, it's high time. And in, in my background... And my, my, my grandfather, who I never knew, he died very young, 40, uh, 48 years of age. And I only knew, the only grandfather I knew on my mom's side of the family was, was I guess, a step-grandfather, but we just called him Grampy Johnny. Came from the old country, came from Scotland. And this was the byword of this man. Everything was this high time. And when he was at the store, he was generally uh, added uh, a number of, of uh, what we call cronies, which becomes sort of a respectful term of others that were around his age that were not working at the time or had retired, and they would come to the store, and every problem of the nation was solved in that grocery store. And, and quite often the phrase, it's high time the government did this, and they would sit there and pontificate upon it. And I remember him hitting the counter, it's about time they did this, it's high time they did this, and there was another fella, and he was a, an Irish character, and uh, he, uh, his name was Williams, and uh, he would be on the other, <coughs> other side of the counter, and he'd be banging on the counter with his fist. And I'd be sort of watching this. It was kind of a ping-pong match of, of this debate that was going on. And all the way through, uh, they, they, would, they would sort of say, you know, it's high time this happened, it's high time that happened. And then the conversation would kind of come to an end because it was time for Mr. Williams to go home to supper and he knew what supper time was and when it was and where it was. And he'd say, well, that's it for today. He'd get up and leave and that was his parting word. And all of a sudden you realize these men were trying to solve all the problems of the nation, all the problems of the city, all the family problems. And they would do this in about 25 minutes on a little grocery store in Exmouth Street in St. John, New Brunswick. And uh, it was a delightful time. I look back on it with fond memories uh, because of my, my, uh, my grandfather, who uh, I've, I've told my family, uh, treated my gram like a queen. Just incredible. And uh, so we, we have a picture of Paul writing. And he's saying it's high time. And it is high time. And, and he's going to tell us what it's high time for. And he gives a commentary because we're living in a country that is celebrating this week its 149th birthday. And I hope I have the math right. Yeah, I do. And uh, it's to be a celebration of Canada. And yet at the same time, uh, people are celebrating different things. And they're not understanding that we're to give thanks to God who has blessed us and blessed us beyond measure. But with blessing comes responsibility. And it begs the question, in a day and age like this is, and I was listening to uh, uh, an American yesterday morning speak, and there was a bit of an interchange going on in the conversation as to how far the United States had fallen away from God's word and how far Canada had fallen away from God's word. And it, it became almost a little bit of a, a sparring back and forth. And I was watching that little ping pong match take place yesterday. And it came down to the end of it, and he finally said, the bottom line is we're in sorry shape. And the question is, what's the Christian response? Because Paul is living in a, a, a statehood, if you will, the Roman Empire that was in sorry shape. And we know that, and we don't need to go back there, 
because it's just a picture in Romans chapter 1 of, of Canada 2016. And what Paul is telling us to do in Romans chapter 14 in regard to the context of Romans chapter 1 is exactly the same marching directions that we're to follow in 2016 in our country. And so as we see him writing, he gives a picture, and he's writing around 57, 58 AD, thereabouts. Uh, shortly after that, and Rome was tightening, and they were trying to expand their boundaries, and in doing that, they were raising taxes. And it's going to come to a point where there's going to be a tax revolt, and Rome is going to start to, to quash any tax revolts. One of those famous tax revolts, of course, took place in, in uh, Jerusalem. And uh, uh, Rome is going to act like Mr. Muscle, and they're going to start tightening up, and they're going to tax more, and they're going to crush every enemy that comes uh, in their way. And as a result of that, Paul is writing, and he's talking to these people and saying, here's the gospel, here's where the gospel uh, is to be applied, here is how it's to be applied. He does it in those first 11 chapters that I mentioned a moment ago, and now he's applying it, and he's reminding us and reminding his people at this time of the, the imminent danger that they were in. And the reality is, that he is giving a statement that is a high time statement. It's a now statement. You know anything about the preaching of the gospel, you'll know something that it never says that tomorrow is the day of salvation. It doesn't say that, does it? It's today is the day of salvation. It does say if somewhere down the line you happen to have a, a, a pricking of conscience uh, in your heart, if, if somehow, sometime, somewhere, someplace, um, and, and you have that, that pricking of the conscience, don't harden your heart. It doesn't say sometime. It says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Nobody's guaranteed tomorrow. I'm reminded of that acutely every time that I drive upon the stretch of road where that, that dreadful accident took place a few short weeks ago. And I have driven that, that stretch of highway. And I was thinking, you could see the marks on the highway. And you say, something dreadful happened here. And I'm driving where something dreadful happened. And it was dreadful. And I would not even dare to describe it. But it was absolutely appalling. And I'm driving on that road. And there it is. And it was a few short days ago. And nobody on, that was involved in that calamity had planned on that. Nobody had expected that. And it begs the question, were they prepared to die? And it begs the question, are you prepared to die if this is your last day? And Paul comes not talking about a little plan ahead thing. He's talking with a certain amount of, of urgency. We're told, actually, Proverbs 27.1 tells us not to boast about tomorrow. And James tells us the same thing. And Jesus tells us that we're not to worry about tomorrow. As a matter of fact, Jesus does us a big favor and tells us that today has enough worries of its own. If you've done, done the calculation on your worry list, and then we can talk later about the inappropriateness of, of Christians to be overwhelmed by worry when they need to be fleeing to Christ. But Paul tells the church with a certain urgency here that there is the, the time to wake up, and the time happens to be now. He does say someday in your contemplation, you might want to make some changes in your life. You might want to do some things that you're not doing now. But rather, he says, it is high time, knowing now the time has come. It already is. It's the hour for you to awaken from sleep. The other morning, uh, my, my daughter was doing some early work, uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, which necessitated her getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, or quarter to five in the morning for her. And uh, uh, thankfully, the Lord has blessed me with an internal clock. And I religiously will wake up about a half an hour even before that and get up and get going. And uh, the other morning, she was not uh, going to work at, uh, at that early hour. And lo and behold, um, I, I didn't set my internal clock, but the, the external clock went off. And uh, it didn't bring joy to my heart because I, I don't like cell phone clocks to begin with. 
because you never know what they're going to say when they're going to say what they're going to say. And I prefer something that, that's like Big Ben would be nice or something like that. It would go bong, and you know, well, I better get up on that one. The whole house is vibrating. The, the alarm goes off. Now, I was not alarmed by that alarm, and I did something I rarely do. I went back and had a little more sleep. Why would I do that? Well, because there's no urgency to it. My daughter wasn't going to work, and I, I had a couple of hours before I got up and was ready to go and do a few things. But Paul tells us this is not a slumber time. He says this is the hour. This is the hour to awake. And he's saying something that tells us the, of, of the unpredictability of life when he reminds us that salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. I don't know when it happens in, in, in your life, and I can't tell you specifically when it happened in my life, but all of a sudden, there came that time when I started reading obituaries. I started reading the newspaper when I was young because in grade five, we had to have this, this thing called current events. And I would go to the newspaper and I would snip out this current event, and I was going to wow and dazzle my classmates by picking out a current event. I generally got it from one of the most important things in the life of any five, a grade five boy. I generally got it off the sports page. After a few weeks of, of uh, explaining what had happened in, in uh, baseball and football and things of that nature, the teacher tired of me, and she said, I want you to get something off the news of the newspaper I don't want any sports. I wanted to take her a comic, but I, mother, my mother said no. I was to get a current event and look at it and write it, read it in my mind, say it, be able to communicate with my class what was happening in the world, even though I hadn't the foggiest notion. But Paul has a foggy notion. He has a clear 2020 as to what's happening in his world. And he knows that it is a world in decline. And he gives this counsel. And it's a counsel that has to do with the reality that it is very easy for you and I to be in a rut. It's very easy for us to become accustomed to sin, to the sin that surrounds us, to all that has taken place. And it's very easy for us to become passive in seeing it sort of come over us like a wave. And Paul says, salvation is nearer to us than we believed every day. It's over with. This is the last today we're going to have. And I say that and periodically on a Sunday night I'll get home and I'll say, and my wife and daughter know this because they've heard it and they're probably tired of it, but this, but Rachel's away today so I only have to tire my wife of it. I'll get down to the end of the day and I'll say, the day thou gavest, Lord, is ended. First heard that hymn at John Diefenbaker's funeral. I hope you hear it at mine. The day thou gavest, Lord, is ended. That's it. That's it. June the 21st comes. There's no more June the 21st, 2016. June the 22nd comes. June the 28th comes. June the 29th comes. June the 30th comes. Maybe they come. We don't know. But there'll be no other one. There'll be no other July 1st, 1996, when my daughter was born. There'll be no other, if the Lord tarries, there'll be no other July 1st, 2016. It'll be over with, done with. It'll be the next day's news, and that's the end. And Paul is writing to a people that need to be up to speed as to how to live in the day in which they live and not to become lethargic and not to become lifeless and worst of all, not to become ignorant of the surroundings and all that's happening in their life. And Paul is on, on, on a mission, if you will, to alert them to that. And he's using urgent language. And he does so by using the expressions, the, the night is almost gone, verse 12, and the day is near. There's something phenomenal, I think, about the human authors of Scripture without getting involved in, in the entanglement of, of eschatological issues and without opening up the debate as to whether it's, it's pre-mill or post-mill or a-mill or through-the-mill 
or any other mill, they managed to communicate the gospel in such a way that every generation that reads the word of God and reads it seriously and studies it consistently comes to the realization this may be the last generation. And it's not wrong for people to think that way. Because that is not supposed to put us to sleep, saying this may be the last generation. Good. Let it happen. That's never the response. No matter who you hear, and no matter what position they come from in their eschatology, I happen to think mine is right, but no matter where they come from, the end result is always the same when they are reputable preachers of God's word rather than having a, a, a position of passivity and let's just do nothing and sit on our hands and wait for the Lord to come like Jonah did where he's sitting under his gourd and say, oh, I can hardly wait till God comes and does a destruction on Nineveh and he's sort of wringing his hands with anticipation. He's sitting back, he's a spectator to what's going to happen. We're not to be spectators. And Paul is not allowing the church to become spectators, nor is he allowing the church to go to sleep. So he uses all of this urgent language here in verse 11 and in verse 12, and they're time verses telling us, time to wake up from sleep. You've slept long enough. Salvation is near. That's time. Then when we believe, the night is almost gone. That's time. The day is near again. What do we do? Remember the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. And what a tragic, tragic story Ephesus is. At least I think it is. What makes Ephesus so tragic is this. The church was founded by the apostle Paul. And Paul labored in Ephesus for three years. And you remember that emotional departure from Ephesus, where, where Paul gathers the elders together. We read about it in Acts chapter 20. We haven't time to go there this morning. You can read it on your own. But, but Paul is calling the elders together, and it's an emotional time, and he talks about how for three years I went from house to house. I was in the synagogue. I was debating here and there, reasoning out the gospel, and I labored to do that. And I preached repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then having done all of that, he, he writes them this wonderful letter uh, of, of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesian Christians. He leaves Timothy behind to maintain the church, to order the church, structure the church. He writes Timothy a letter. It's appropriately called 1 Timothy. He writes Timothy a second letter, which, by the way, is called 2 Timothy. He writes those letters to Timothy, and he has stationed this man in Ephesus, they have had the blessing of Paul's ministry, the blessing of the partners of Paul, and there were a number of partners that came and went during those three years in Ephesus and beyond that, uh, subsequent visits by others to cheer the church on and encourage the church. And now we have John writing, and lo and behold, we have this special letter to Ephesus after having all of these benefits. I mean, there are times where we sort of say, Man, if I had had that man preaching in our church, boy, well, I tell you, we'd be just on fire. We'd be serving. If I'd had the opportunities that church had, if I had this, if I had that, and on and on and on and on and on. If, if the carpeting was changed in this church, we'd have revival. And we would just go on and on about all these things. As if we had this and we had a little more of that and so forth and so on. You can't do much better than the Apostle Paul, I don't think. And that personal care that he poured his life and heart into the church. And this young man, Timothy, and, and having people like, like Dr. Luke involved and so forth. Now the letter comes in Revelation chapter 2. And here it is. It's to the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, right? The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and it sounds good, and it is good, that you cannot tolerate evil men, 
And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. There's all sorts of phonies. And they were able to put them to the test. And they were able to see the marks of the apostle and what they are. The signs of the apostle, Paul calls them as he writes the church in Corinth in his second letter. These are the signs of the apostle. There's a little checklist here. And here's a checklist of the gospel, the message being preached and the messenger and so forth. You cannot tolerate evil men. You put them to the test. Those who call themselves apostles. And they're not and you found them to be false. And you say, wow, right on. That's a sharp church. They're thinking it through. They're doing what they need to do. And then he goes on. He says, you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. However, in this hyperactive church, they had lost inertia. They had lost the realization. Why are we what we are? Why are we doing what we do, and as a result, it became just performance. And he goes on and he says this, this is what I have against you. You've lost your first love. Your love is to be for Christ. Your commitment is to be for Christ. Your desire is to be for the things of Christ and the glory of Christ and the honor of Christ and the name of Christ and the knowledge of the Lord. We're to pray that the knowledge of the Lord would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And, and while the church was busy doing its churchy things, it had lost the focal point of the church. And the focal point of the church is Christ. Is Christ. The heavenly bridegroom. We, we, we are conditioned in our mind to think the focal point of the, of the wedding party is the bride. But in, in the Bible, the focal point, we mentioned a few weeks ago from the Gospel of Matthew, the focal point was on the groom. And the groom was having all the parties and everything. I don't know whether they were coming up with all sorts of names and gift ideas and all the rest of it. But the focal point was on the groom. Christ is the groom. He is the one who comes for the bride. The church is the bride. And she is to be lily white. She is to be pure and spotless in the face of Christ. And this church was laboring to do everything. And one thing they were missing out was... They lost their love of Christ. They lost the Lord. They lost the centrality of why they are what they are. And Paul is, is saying it's important to wake up. It's important to have a grip on ourselves. It's important to see why do we serve Christ? Why do we do what we do? And this church in Rome particularly needed to be up to speed because of where they were. They were right there in headquarter town where Caesar and the gang lived. And Paul tells them, the night's almost gone. And he tells them what to do. You see, the dilemma was that if we lose our first love, we'll soon lose everything. And it may well be and it's a real dilemma. And it's this, that if a person sleeps on in their Christian life, it begs the question. If they're docile, disinterested, uninvolved, don't care, doesn't matter, haven't time, half committed, wholly committed, not committed, it begs the question, how do you know? And it's a pointed one that you're a true believer in Christ at all. Hmm? You see, Christians are to bear fruit, aren't they? We talked about that back in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of John talks about it as well. When Jesus is giving that wonderful allegory of the vine, and he says, I am the vine, verse 5, John chapter 15, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. He bears fruit. It's a mark of the believer. He's a fruit bearer. He's showing the marks of Christ in his life. That's his, his life is to live for Christ. To me, is to follow Christ. To me, it's to live for Christ. And Paul writes that way, doesn't he? That's his testimony. To me, to live is Christ. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you're savingly joined to me, if you're livingly joined to me, you will bear much fruit. 
Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then he goes on, he gives these sober words. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. They gather them up. They cast them into the fire. They're burned. Why are they burned? Because they're fruitless. A believer is one who is savingly joined to Christ. And he is savingly joined to Christ. And because he is savingly joined to Christ, he bears fruit. And here was the danger. And people oftentimes are lulled to sleep. And they say, well, I made a profession of faith. Lots of people have. Lots of people have. But the question is, where is the fruit? Years ago, Wendy set a very clever advertising campaign, didn't they? You remember it? This little lady would come in to Wendy's, sort of a granny clampet type. And she'd sort of march into Wendy's and she'd look around and she'd be at the counter and she'd say, Where's the beef? Where's the beef? She was looking for something of substance. And really, what it comes down to for you and I is this, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Where are the marks of Christ? Where is the zeal for Christ? And Paul, as he writes to the church, or writes to Titus, pardon me, Titus is in, in Crete. When, when Paul writes to Titus, he gives us an idea as to the work of Christ and, and what the work of Christ is to accomplish. And you notice what he says in Titus chapter 2. He says that, that we're to instruct, or we're instructed to deny godliness, verse 12, worldly desires. We're to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Now, if we live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, we're going to stand out because the present age is none of those. It was none of those for Paul. It was none of that for the Puritans. It was none of that for Charles Spurgeon. It was none of that in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. It is none of that in 2016 either. And as Paul is writing, he says, this is how we're to live. And we're to live in this present age that way, looking for the blessed hope. See, there's that eschatological aspect. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. He didn't die and purchase a people to be indifferent to him, to be passive, inactive, inert, half awake, half asleep, half committed half involved, but a people zealous for good deeds. John talks about the tragedy of, of those, remember in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us. Why did they go out from us? They went out from us because they weren't of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed with us, but to prove that they weren't of us, they went out from us. In other words, we're to be savingly joined to Christ, and we're to be savingly joined to his body. The speaker that I heard yesterday reminded us that there is an alarming number of, of professing Christians who profess Christ and have nothing to do with the church of Christ. That is shameful. That is absolutely appalling. It's unbiblical. Christ came and he gave himself for his church. He bled and died to purchase his church. We're to be joined to a church, joined to a perfect church. <laughs> Don't count on it. You're here, aren't you? We're not perfect, but we're to be joined to a church. We're to be with God's people, offering up to God the sacrifice of praise in his house on his day. And the people are to see us getting up in the morning on a Sunday morning. People look at us. We know they look at us because we look at them. And they must wonder, what's going on in that house? Every Sunday morning, I tied a knot around my neck. Is it okay? Thank you. I tied a knot around my neck, and I have my Bible with me, and I have my bride with me, and I have my daughter with me, and we hop in the jalopy, and we go to church. And we're the only ones that I see going to church in this day and age. And we come, and we see you, and we're glad we see you. And what are we doing? 
We didn't come to socialize, stay after church tonight, and you have berries and ice cream, and you can lay awake all night. But, but we're here to be with Christ's people to worship God. And Paul says this requires alertness. This requires a getting up. It's not enough to get up and, and, and say, well, well now what am I going to do? We need to have the marching orders. It's not enough to wake up for sure. We do have to get up. But now Paul tells us, okay, now that you're up, we finally got you out of bed, we have you on your feet, now what? And Paul tells us, now what? Giving the commentary on the shortness of time, your time is short, my time is short, he says, this is what we're to do. He tells us that we're to behave properly. Now, in our culture, behaving is relative, isn't it? Just whatever you want to do is your behavior. And it doesn't matter what you do, just do what you do, and, and that's all well and good. But that's not what we're called. We're, we're called to behave properly. And that requires us to do two things. One is to lay aside the deeds of darkness, and the other key to behaving properly is to put or adorn ourselves with the, the clothing, if you will, of righteousness, the clothing of light, the armor of light, as Paul describes it here, or the whole armor of God is the way he describes it in Ephesians chapter 6. But there is this, this undressing and dressing. And so he says that when we get up, we're to do these things. We're to lay aside the deeds of darkness. We talked about it Wednesday night when we're looking at the, word, the works of the flesh. And he uses this language that has to do with dressing and undressing. And we, we're clothed with the unrighteousness of, of, of filthy living, as Paul describes it. We're, we're clothed with that, and that has to be taken off. There has to be this disrobing of, of, of the deeds of the flesh. And it has to be purposeful, it has to be targeted, and it has to be decisive. And so uh, when we looked at that, and let's just turn there for a moment over to Galatians chapter 5, uh, where we were on Wednesday night, and uh, it tells us, here are the deeds of the flesh. Verse 19. It tells us in Galatians 5, verse 19, the deeds of the flesh, no guesswork here, the deeds of the flesh are evident. We're not involved in this introspection saying, wow, I don't know what to do in life. I'm not really sure what I should be doing. I wish I knew. I wish there was some clear direction as to what I should be doing, how I should live. I, w I wonder if there is any clear direction. Well, yes, there is. And it's right here where he says, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They're known, they're discernible, they're observable. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And then he adds this all-purpose statement, and things like these, the whole shebang, he says, those things, those are the work of the flesh, and those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're living like that. Your life is like that. Your practice is like that. The commonality of life is characterized by these adjectives, these attributes. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's plain and simple. And Paul says, you have to get a grip on those things and discard them. My mother learned very early to get secondhand clothes for me because I played hard and I would come home with the knees turned out of my trousers. And one time I came home and she said, I hope you had a jacket around you. I ripped the seat right out of my trousers. The whole flap was showing the whole nine yards. And I had to borrow a jacket and tie it around my waist so that I could walk home and uh, not have people honk and give cat calls. And uh, so I got home. What's that? And, and I said, oh, that's David's uh, jacket, David, a friend of mine. I said, that's David's jacket. What do you do with that? I took the jacket off and turned around like that. And she, she knew what I was doing with that when I did that. And she said, how could you tear the clothes off your hide? It's, a, it's baseball, Mom. Take me out to the ball. It's baseball. 
And she knew after that, and then she would buy me, she would get these trousers at a second-hand store. I don't know where she got them. She would turn them inside out. She would iron patches on the inside of the knees, turn it back out, and she would a patch on this side of the rump and stiltskin and on the other side, and let me out to play. She, one time I had to leave everything. I couldn't go further in the house. She came out with my bathrobe. She said, leave it there on the floor. Paul was saying, these things are filthy. Tear them off, leave them, be done with them, and march on. Now, having given the order to march on, he says, oh, by the way, before you march on, you need to be properly clothed. Here it is. And he says this, put on the armor of light. You see, we're the, we're the people of light. When he says, put on the whole armor of God, when he gives us those directions, He's sending us out into the world to stand out. He's sending us out so people will see and recognize there's really something about these people. They're fully clothed. They have taken on the full armor of God. Ephesians 6, uh, when he tells us that in verse 13, they've taken on the whole armor of God. And he tells us what that armor is. And he, he says we're to have our, 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 our loins girded with truth and the breastplate of righteousness and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of, of peace. And we're to take up the shield of faith so that we're able to extinguish the flaming arrows of, of the evil one. And the helmet of salvation, it's to be on our head. We're to have it in our head. And the sword of the spirit, the word of God is to be in our, our hand. It's to be in our heart. And we're to go out with prayer and petition. And we're to persevere. And we're not to drop anything until we're called home. He says, that's how we're to live. And he summarizes it by saying, that's proper living. That's proper behavior. It's wonderful imagery, isn't it? It's challenging imagery. It's sobering imagery. It's imagery that we find ourselves saying, there are days where I'm ashamed of myself. Hmm? Do you have those days? I had an opportunity. I blew it. I should have said something. I didn't. Where was my mind at? What was I thinking? Why did I waste my time on this situation when I should have been doing this? Why did I do this when there was this that had to be done? Why did I have this, but this was more urgent? How come I had that opportunity and I didn't lay hold of that opportunity? I wonder if I go back tomorrow to the same place at the same time and I'm wearing the same clothes and the whole nine yards. I wonder if that opportunity will come back to me again, and it won't. And Paul says... We are to behave properly as in the day, as in the day. Now, we've become so decadent in our day that it used to be that the bad living took place at night, but we've become so decadent in our day that there's no hour of the day that's safe anymore. But he says we're to behave properly, not in, not in carousing, in drunkenness. Our world is a world of excess, isn't it? I want more and more and more of this and more of that and more of this. And, and it's a world that lacks what is one of the fruits of the Spirit? Self-control. There is no self-control. There's no self-control in our day. And we see that again and again. And there's no meekness. And there's no kindness. And there's no gentleness. There aren't people rude. Have you noticed that? A gal was trying to cross the, 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 the road the other day. And um, I stop at the intersection. The car pulls up behind me, immediately honks his horn. Now, albeit maybe my motivation was not the best, she had just visited the uh, liquor store in Essex, and she had a bottle of wine or something with her. But set all that aside, she's trying to get across the street. I finally rolled down my window because the other cars coming my way wouldn't stop. So I stuck my hand out like that. People went, who's a nut with a hand out the window? It's the pastor that called a Baptist church. I should have had that on. Anyway, I hand out the window. Finally, the car stopped. The, the sweet lady with the bottle of, uh, of uh, cooking stuff um, <laughs> smiled at me and thanked me. The guy behind me was ripping mad because I took 23 seconds off the guy's life so the gal could go with her cooking stuff. Why so mad? Why so upset? It's a hostile world. It's a me-only world. And it won't take us long to realize that in the context of where we live in Christians, 
you'll find out that the anti-bullying people are really quick at bullying Christians. And if you haven't found that out now, you'll find it out real soon. And Paul says, this is how we're to live. Forget how mean you're going to be treated and how you're going to be castigated. And every time that, that you say something, you'll be called a homophobe and this phobe and that phobe and every other kind of phobe that they can think of in their mind. Paul says, here's what we're to do. Put on, verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses that clothing imagery again. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Put on Christ. Adorn yourself of Christ. Look to Christ. Fix your eye upon Christ. Turn your eye upon Jesus. Look full on his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. And they will grow strangely dim. And they'll get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Because the longer we look at Christ, the more we love Christ, the more we're adorned by Christ, and the more we want to mimic Christ. That's why when Paul uses the word imitate, uh, be an imitator of Christ, he uses the word mimic. That's the Greek word. It means to study in such a way as to duplicate in your life. To so study Christ that way. To so study how he lives. To so study what he said. That people will recognize as they did in the first century. What did they recognize? They saw these people who were following Christ and they called them the people of the way. And what did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They looked at these people. They were professing Christians. They were talking Christ. They were gossiping. What were they gossiping? They were gossiping the gospel. And as they were observed, they called them in Antioch. As they observed these people, it was in Antioch where the pagans looked at these people and they called them Christians. That says two things. The message of Christ was resonating in Antioch and there was enough evidence in the lives of the people that they were able to connect the dots. And they saw these are Christians and they're living like it. And Paul says that's the way we're to do it. Make no provision, absolutely no provision in regard to the lust of the world. But put on Christ. Look upon Christ. That wonderful verse in Hebrews in, in chapter 12. And uh, what, a, what a, a powerful, powerful verse it is. Therefore, this is after, after that whole list of the fathers of the faith in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Then in chapter 12, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, every one of them, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And then he goes on and says, and let us run with endurance. Endurance. In Rossi, New Brunswick, there's a wonderful track. It's a cross-country track. It's a five-mile track. And you, you start off like you were running the 100-yard dash. You go down, and when you get to the curve, instead of following the curve, you go straight through, and you're running through the woods, and you're running uphill and downhill and the whole nine yards, and you're doing that. You never see another spectator you see them when you start off the first hundred yards. You never see them again until the last of the race. And we're running. And, and some of the paths are narrow and some guys go the wrong way because they weren't there in advance to prepare for the race. They had a walk through the day before and a whole bunch of people said, oh, I run that before, that's all fine. And they get out and they, they go the wrong way. And they're running, running. They find themselves, if they go the wrong way, they find themselves in a wonderful place. It's a sand trap on the ninth hole of the Riverside Golf Course. Then they know they've gone the wrong way. Very scenic, wrong way. And you run through the path, path, run, run, run. Four and, and three-quarter miles. And then all of a sudden, you get the hint. You're getting close to home. And then you run out, and finally you're in the visible uh, stadium where you could see their, their, their little stadium at Rossi Collegiate School and there's the track and there are the people and it doesn't matter which school you were from or where you were from or where you finished they were cheering they were glad to see some runners coming in 
And they were cheering. And I tell you, when they cheer, you run harder, no matter how tired you are. I don't know how that works, but I know it works. And what does he say here? What's the writer tell us? We're running with endurance the race that is set before us. And sometimes we'll be running in paths and we think we're going in the wrong direction. And some days there'll be dark paths when you're running through the forest. Some days it's really dark. And then there's this brightening and you know you're running and you're running in the right direction and you run real hard. And that's what Paul is telling us. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. We're to labor and do that. Well, we have to stop. But before I do, I don't normally do this. I want to read a section from one of the greatest books on the Christian life that I have ever, ever, ever read. J.C. Ryle's book called Practical Religion. And it's a longer quote than I normally read, so bear with me if if you would. My favorite chapter in the whole book is chapter 8 on zeal. Uh, Chapter 1, I think, is self-inquiry, which is just frightening in and of itself, but it's necessary. It goes through 21 chapters. Chapter 21, it's appropriately laid out. Chapter 21 is entitled Eternity. You're at the finish line. Chapter 8 is entitled Zeal. This is what he says. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will, and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous men. This desire is so strong, when it really reigns in a man, it impels him to make any sacrifice, to go through any trouble, to deny himself to any amount, to suffer, to work, to labor, to toil, to spend himself and be spent, even to die, if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, through-going, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up with one thing, and that is to please God. Hmm? May that be you and I. Let's pray. Father, These are hard, challenging days, and they require a soldier that is alive, alert, committed, a soldier that looks to Christ and realizes that to identify with Christ is the highest of calling, the greatest of privilege, offers the most wonderful of rewards. And Father, we pray that we would have that in our heart in this ever-present age that we live in, this age that is so indifferent to righteousness and holiness and all that we are to stand for as Christians. And help us, our Father, to so have enough credibility before the watching world uh, that when they see us, they will be curious about us or even annoyed with us, but that they would know one thing for sure, We're serious about what we're saying, serious about how we're living, because we love the Lord and we're living for Christ. Help us to do that. Help that to be our Christianity. Grant us to have that zeal. And we pray, Lord, that you would receive the honor and the glory. And we pray, Father, that the gospel would shine in our lives and that the gospel would shine again in this dark nation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close this morning, uh, hymn number 246.